for context, I'll begin in verse 1 and we'll read through verse 16. God's word in the book of Ephesians chapter 4 beginning in verse 1, it says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. The earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended for above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we might no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried away by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Lord, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word abides forever. So would you now speak to us through your word that we may see your great plan to fill this world with your glory. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, how do you give an important gift? What do you do to set the stage so that everything is ready and will be remembered? If we went around the room and heard all the different proposal stories for every couple, I'm sure we'd hear a different story based on each unique situation and each unique couple. Each time the person wants to make a wonderful, memorable event so that the gift, their proposal, will be remembered. Well, God had a grand gift to share. And the story for it happened is the best story ever told. God wanted to fill the universe with his glory. And yet there was one slight problem. His image had been disformed. The humans that he made to fill the universe with his image now are disfigured due to sin. Thus this morning Paul shows us that God's plan to fill the world with his glory necessitated the incarnation and ascension of Christ. So as we look at these verses this morning, chapter 4, 7 through 10, I believe the emphasis is that God's plan to fill the world with his glory necessitated the incarnation and ascension of Christ. If you have a bulletin, you can see on the back three separate sections. First, we're going to look at Jesus' unique gift in verse 7. Then verses 8, Jesus' victorious gift. And then lastly, verses 9 and 10, Jesus' fulfilling gift. But first, Jesus' unique gift. And as we are reading along, you may have noticed this sharp contrast from verses 1 through 6 to verse 7. 
You know, verses 1 through 6 was describing a life, as it says in verse 1, of walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Paul told us how to walk with humility, gentleness, patience, that we're to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So in that, for us to be unified, we need to have something in common. In verses 4 through 6, there are seven times he says there are one thing. We're all united in being joined as one body. We're all given one Holy Spirit. We all share one hope. We all submit to one Lord. Not only that, but all genuine Christians are united in the one faith. We express that in one baptism, and all are adopted to the same one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Thus, verses 3 through 6 urge us to be unified because of all these things that we have in common, in union. And yet then notice verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us. In contrast to all the alls, Paul now focuses on how Christ gave a gift to each individual Christian. In other words, while there's unity in Christ, that doesn't mean there should be uniformity. I went to the same university as an older brother, and several times a semester I'd be walking across campus or in the student union, and someone would walk up to me and go, Hey, you have a brother named Daniel, don't you? And I'd say, yes. And the highlight of my college career is when someone went up to him and said, Hey, Jer, you have a brother, don't you? Finally, they recognized me and said him. But nonetheless, the point is, we have such a family resemblance that they could see me in him or him in me. As brothers and sisters in Christ, one spiritual father, there should be a family resemblance of, what did he say? Humility, gentleness, patience, all these things. And yet, that doesn't mean there's going to be a uniformity. God makes us each different. And we're seeing here, he's saying that Christ gives us each a unique spiritual gift. Now, you might be thinking I'm slightly misreading this because it doesn't say he gave us a gift. Rather, it says in verse 7 that he gave us grace. However, the larger context, I think, is showing a gift because verse 8, he's going to talk about um, how he gives gifts to man. And verse 11 opens up with, he gave, and then it's going to detail some of those gifts. And then verses 15 and 16 say, rather speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with it is it equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love this whole section is how do we function as a church so that we grow up together not just individually and the new testament is clear that when we are saved we are gifted by god with ways to serve the church first peter 4:10 says as each has received a gift Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. To each, so not just to some Christians, to every single Christian, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. <coughs> and notice in verse 7 that grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Christ chooses to gift us how he desires. The gift of gods are like our physical features. Why am I six foot and not five foot? Why am I a man 
instead of a woman? Why do I have the hair color I do? Now, we could talk about genetics and the way chromosomes work, but ultimately, all of that is because that's what God decided I would be like. It's all due to God. And likewise, our spiritual giftings are not something we choose, but it's rather how God has chosen to give them to us in Jesus. As we already read in Ephesians 4, 15 through 16, God desires in his plan that when every Christian uses their gifts, the body grows up to how he wants it to be. The obvious counter to this gift idea is that when we don't use our gifts, we hinder our brothers and sisters in Christ. We hinder the church. Some of y'all may have heard of Mark Dever. He's a pastor in Washington, D.C. And he's often told this story of how when he was at a church, he had a friend who was a Christian and very active in ministry outside of the church. And the man would come right after the service had started and often leave right before the service ended. And once Mark grabbed him before he left and said, Hey, you know, I see you and you're kind of in and out right at the beginning and the end. What would you think of becoming more committed, even joining the church? And his friend <coughs> scoffed and was like, well, Why would I ever want to do that? It would just slow me down. And you may think the same thing about church. You know, I mean, I kind of have my spiritual thing I do and I know I should go to church. So I go, but really... To get involved in the lives of people, that just kind of messed my life up. It would slow me down. It would be a little bit of a burden. But Mark replied to his friend, Well, did you ever consider that maybe God wants to slow you down so he can speed others up? You know, God wants us to serve others. He's given us gifts, not just for our own enjoyment, our own development, but to bless and serve others. And when we consider God's spiritual gift to each believer, I really think we should remember 1 Corinthians 12, 7 that says, To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit of God. I think this is important because when we hear the word gift, we think of someone who's like a prodigy. Oh, they're gifted and talented. Or someone who has a clearly definable skill. And yet, some gifts of the Spirit don't have a clear tangible nature to them yes the gift of teaching that's something very public but the new testament also talks about the gift of compassion or the gift of generosity to name two and those are more like temperaments or ways to live that are not clearly manifested and seen and yet every gifting we're given is a manifestation of the spirit you see god is wanting to reveal himself to us in the way he gifts us. What I'm trying to get across is that a spiritual gift is nothing more than revealing God to others. Now, of course, we're never going to display God's omniscience, even though some of you may think you have that. We're never going to display God's omnipresence, but God may have gifted you with the gift of service. And when you serve, you help your brother and sister in Christ see our God who loves to serve. When you use your gift of encouragement, you come alongside like the Holy Spirit who wants to encourage. And Paul's point here is that God's plan to fill the world with his glory, for that to happen, Jesus had to come and give gifts of the Spirit of God to each believer. And that's why, even though we may even have the same gift, it may look slightly different. You know, I personally have been helped by the teaching of John Piper, John MacArthur, I already mentioned Mark Dever, C.S. Lewis, but every one of those people is very different. 
You know, God may gift us in similar ways, and yet slightly different. You know, the point is, we need you, and God wants you to use your gifts. You know, when you think of the church, I hope you think, don't think of this as a passive event you attend. No, church is not merely about attending an event, but rather about gathering with brothers and sisters in Christ to show them more of Christ. John MacArthur writing on this said, Not to use our gift is an affront to God's wisdom, a rebuff of his love and grace, and a loss to his church. So Christ, if you are a believer, gave you a specific gift, a way to manifest the Spirit of God to others. And this gift was more thought out and more personal than any gift you've ever been given. You know, graduation season, you might call it, is right around the corner. And many a person will be given a gift in which they go, oh, thank you. And they're not really sure what to do with it. God is giving you a gift not to forget about it. Not to go stick it in a closet and one day go, well, I wonder if I could return that and get something else. Not to look over at the others and go, well, I kind of wish I got what they did. God has personally chosen to gift you in the way he has so that you might uniquely manifest him to others. So are you using the gift God has given you? Are you engaged in the life of a local church for the glory of God and the good of his people? Yes, church might slow you down, but God intends for your gift to be a way to speed others up. In fact, God intends that we get the most joy when we serve others and we reveal him to them. You know, God not only graciously saved us, he then gifted us to be a representative of him. It's his grace that allows us to serve. Well, Paul now turns in verse 8 to show that these gifts were purchased by Christ's victory. Verse 8, our second section, Jesus' victorious gift. And Paul seeks to explain this, what he means by referring to Psalm 68, 18. You may see in your Bible that it's indented there, trying to show you this is a passage of Scripture from somewhere else. And if you go to Psalm 68, it's rather interesting because it begins with words that Israel was to use when they moved the Ark of the Covenant. The way the psalm then moves, the language used, the connection to moving the Ark of the Covenant leads many people to think that David wrote it after leading the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem. Now David was only able to move the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem after he defeated the Jebusites who had dwelt in Jerusalem. The Psalm 68 is like a victory ode, you might say, in which the military victor, David, comes to Jerusalem after routing the enemy, taking prisoners. So verse 18 of Psalm 68 begins, as it does here in Ephesians 4.8, when he ascended on high. Well, Jerusalem, as you may know, sat on a hill, so David literally had to ascend up to Jerusalem. And yet Paul is using that to make reference to Jesus and Jesus ascending on high. What Keith read for us earlier from Acts 1, 1 through 11. In that great event, God rose Jesus from earth and seated him at his right hand. And Jesus' ascension points to many great truths, but let me briefly give five. 
First, the, excuse me, the ascension proclaims Christ's return. After it happened, an angel appeared to the disciples and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Just like Jesus arose, just like he ascended, so he will descend again. Second, the ascension proclaims Christ's intercessory prayer. Intercessory means to go in the middle for someone. Jesus left not because he doesn't care, but because he now intercedes for us from heaven. Hebrews 7, 25-26 says, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, through Jesus, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and, it says, exalted above the heavens. His exaltation, his ascension above the heavens, allows him now to be right next to the Father and interceding for every single one of us. Third, the ascension proclaims Christ's loving preparation. Jesus told his disciples, John 14, 3, I go to prepare a place for you, and I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Because he ascended, he can now prepare a place for us. Fourth, the ascension proclaims the goodness of our bodies. You know, Jesus rose from the earth in his body. He did not just dissolve into a mist in front of them. You know, throughout time, people have become overly spiritual and thought, oh, well, the spiritual side of us is good, but our bodies, those are bad. Yet the Bible never teaches that. We are body and soul and both matter. Jesus, now for all eternity, is body and soul. Well, fifth, the ascension opened the way for the Spirit to come. In John 16, 7, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send him to you. By Jesus ascending, it opened the door for the Holy Spirit to be sent to the church. So those are five wonderful truths of the ascension. But that's not the one Paul mentions here, so I get a sixth one. And six, we see that another importance of the ascension is from Psalm 68, 18, which it says, he led a host of captives. Now, you've got to put yourself in ancient times. In ancient times, if a conquering general wins, how is he going to let everyone know? There's no Twitter. There's no CNN. There's no Pony Express. There's no Snapchat. So what does he do? Well, he makes a long line. A big parade, you might say. And he gets on a horse in the front... And after him are soldiers, after that are wagons loaded down with the booty and the spoils. And then shuffling, dragged in chains at the very end are the defeated enemy. And as they go through every town, they don't need CNN because they can go, well, that guy's in the front with the horse. And those guys are in the back with chains. We know who the victor is. Well, Paul gives a similar metaphor, Colossians 2.15. He's discussing the cross and he writes, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them 
in Christ. Jesus leads a host of captives. You see, the cross of Christ did more than grant personal forgiveness, for it also disarmed all spiritual authorities. The cross gave victory to Christ over all spiritual rulers, and his resurrection and ascension to the Father's right hand validated that victory. Paul mentioned Jesus' power over all authorities in Ephesians 1. Let's flip back there real quickly. Ephesians 1, verses 19 through 21. There, the whole section is, he's wanting them to know various things. Verse 19, and to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him, This is the ascension and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So he's saying, look, the ascension, when he brought Christ up and seated him, it showed he ruled over all things because he led a host of captives. And that leads to the third thing in verse 8 of chapter 4. He gave gifts to men. Now the context here, Ephesians 4, 7, all of this is about Jesus giving gifts. And Psalm 68, 18 is a vivid picture of Jesus' victory that allowed him to give gifts. And yet this actually poses a slight problem, because if you go to Psalm 68, 18, it doesn't say that he gave gifts. Psalm 68, 18 says he received gifts. So did Paul skip a wanna that week and forgot what the verse said? Did he not understand his Old Testament? No. Paul is giving the thrust of the meaning. Because when a captor gets gifts, what does the general who wins like to do with those? Well, the conquering general would then give gifts to others from the spoils. 1 Samuel 30, 26. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah. And Jesus' gifts are exactly what the Bible predicted would happen. Isaiah 53, 12 says, Therefore I will divide a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Jesus came for the very purpose of conquering, winning, and then sharing the gifts. Thus Jesus the victor not only received gifts, but he also gave gifts and give gifts to men. Thus we see that Jesus on the cross purchased every spiritual gift he would ever give us. Then the resurrection and ascension validated God the Father's approval of that victory over every spiritual force in the universe. And we should take comfort in this amazing truth. You know, no demonic force, not even the devil, can overpower you due to Christ. As 1 John 4, 4 says, For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You know, often when people think of spiritual things, they either mock them, oh, that's silly, or they live their lives in fear of them. As followers of Christ, we don't need to be immobilized by fear of Satan. Neither should we act as though he's impotent. He is a roaring lion, seeking whom he would devour. And yet... He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. I know children, sometimes 
There are things in life that appear immobilizingly scary. The long, dark hallway. Going to a new place. Having to meet those people. Well, the very worst thing that you could think of is weak in comparison to Christ. You have something more powerful and who cares about you more. And so you do not need to fear. You can live in confidence. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And all because of Jesus' victorious gift. Well, then in verses 9 through 10, Paul's going to turn to explain that Jesus ascended and first ascended for the purpose of filling the world with God's glory. So our last section, Jesus fulfilling gift. But before getting to the purpose in verse 10, Paul expands more on the ascent and descent in verse 9. And these words have often left people confused and thinking some things that just are not true. And the main issue resolves around what does it mean when it says Jesus descended, and specifically to the lower regions. Now to say up front, what I think it means is in contrast to what it means when he ascended, like John 3.13. No one has ascended into heaven, except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. I think the descent is talking about the incarnation. Yet, many people are not thinking that it means the incarnation. Rather, they think it means something else. And... This may seem a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I think it's important. You know, and one way to get at this might be to ask, where was Jesus on the Sabbath, on the Saturday, after he died on Good Friday, before he rose on Sunday? You know, in the Apostles' Creed, we say he descended into hell. And yet, if you look and research the Apostles' Creed, you'll realize that that phrase was not in the original, and some traditions even today will say he descended to the dead. Well, I think there's some theological problems with saying Jesus descended to hell. First, hell is the place of punishment, but Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. If it's finished, he doesn't need to go make any more payment. Second, Jesus told the repentant thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. That definitely is not referring to hell. Third, Jesus said to God the Father, Into your hands I commit my spirit. Thus Jesus' spirit was committed into God the Father's hands, not sent to a place of punishment. So am I saying that Jesus went to heaven when he died? No. Rather, we have to realize the Bible talks about this intermediate state, what in the Old Testament is called Sheol, and in the New Testament is called Hades. So, for example, Psalm, not Psalm, Genesis 37, 35, the father Jacob, his name was changed to Israel, remember the children deceive him and make him think Joseph died, and he then says, I shall go down to Sheol, to my son, mourning. He believed he and Whoever else died, we're going to go to Sheol. So you might think, okay, well, Sheol's where righteous people go. Except Psalm 31, 17 says, Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. So everyone in the Old Testament who died went to this place called Sheol. However, if you then read Jesus' story, Luke 16, about Lazarus and the rich man, you'll realize in Sheol... It's already slightly divided because the rich man is in a place of torment 
And Lazarus is in a place of comfort. Along with recognizing the biblical idea of this intermediate state, we should remember that death is a separating, a tearing apart of our body and soul. An unnatural process. And yet Psalm 16.10 made a promise For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. And yet, the Apostle Peter will use that psalm in his sermon in Acts 2 and say that predicted the resurrection of Jesus on the third day. Well, why is that? Well, because in the Jewish idea, the body began to be corrupted on the fourth day. So he couldn't stay in the grave four days. He'd have to be risen on the third day. Thus, to get back to our question on Dark Saturday, if we can call it that, after Good Friday, Jesus' body lay in the grave, but it was only for three three days, so it would not enter corruption. However, on Dark Saturday, Jesus' soul was in Sheol, not hell. There, Jesus was, was with the repentant thief on the cross and all the righteous ones who lived before Christ. Then when Christ rose again, his body was reunited with his soul. He led the righteous in Sheol, to heaven. So now what happens when we die? Well, if we are believers in Christ, our body will be buried, but our soul goes to be with Christ. We know that because 2 Corinthians 5.8, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and be at home with the Lord. Well, if we're at home with the Lord, where is the Lord? He is ascended and in heaven. So then, are we forever a soul, either with Christ or in Hades? Well, no. For Jesus tells us in John chapter 5, 25 through 29, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he's given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all those who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Thus, death rips apart body and soul, but on this day the resurrection either to life or judgment, our body and soul will be reunited, will appear before the judgment seat of God, either for eternal commendation or eternal condemnation. And our only hope on that day is not going to be, well, I was a really good person. I did a lot of wonderful things. I was better than others. Our hope on that day will be in Christ alone. That he was the victor. That he conquered sin, death, and the devil. And that by him, we can be forever in resurrection of life. Well, off the rabbit trail, though it's tied to Ephesians 4, I don't think Paul's saying Jesus descended to hell. Rather, he's saying Jesus descended to the earth and the lower parts. So, well, why lower parts? I think it's just a way of redefining. So if I said, I went to the cities of Fort Worth and Dallas, the of is not introducing something inside the cities. It's just clarifying what the cities are. So when it says... He came, he descended to the lower parts of the earth. I think the earth is just redefining. He came to the lower parts in comparison to heaven, lower 
What is that? The earth. Well, then we see that Jesus descended, his incarnation, and ascended for the purpose of filling all things. That's the end of chapter 4, verse 10. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all things. That purpose, he might fill all things. Well, what is Jesus filling all things with? Well, we see that again in chapter 1. If you turn back there to verses 22 through 23. So Ephesians 1, 22 through 23, it says, And he, being God, put all things under his feet and gave him Christ as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so God fills all things through the body of Christ. You see, God made us to reflect him. He made us his image to be pictures of him around the globe. But our sin has kept us from that. However, by Jesus descending as a man and ascending, he conquered sin. He overcame the forces of evil and now he reigns. And not only that, but by his ascension, he has sent us his spirit who fills each believer with the manifestation of God to those around us. You know, at times the Bible says things that if it didn't say them, we could scarcely believe them. And yet in these verses, Paul said that the church has the fullness of God. You know, this is fascinating because in the Old Testament, the fullness of God is where the tabernacle was. The fullness of God is where the temple was. And yet God chose his glory to be specifically made known in Jesus. And Jesus allowed that glory to now be made known in the church. As we look around the church, whether that's universal or national or here even local, we may not think much glory fills it. Yet God sees his church as the place where the fullness of his glory dwells. Or to tie it back to the language in chapter 4, verse 10. He ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. So when you think of church, you might think of a service to attend, or a building, or more accurately, the people. Yet all of those, even the last one, the people, does not grasp the grandeur and glory of church. The church is the people where God has planned to fill the world with his glory. To do this, it necessitated the incarnation and ascension of Christ. So may we see the wonderful nature of God's church and do our part to help display that glory with other believers. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gift of being able to be a reflection the very pale one, a reflection of you. So Lord, may we, as Wichita Falls Baptist Church, be a reflection of you to each other, to those around us, that because of your spirits dwelling in us and being amongst us, people would say, God is truly among them. Lord, would you be honored and glorified in us? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.